0: have it wrong. Uh, And purgatory is not in another life. It's simply childbirth. That's what it is. I love my kids. (laughs) What a great way to start out a group. You know, I think he hates his children. (laughs) If you brought a Bible, open up with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. A quick word about my method while you're uh, turning there. I'll actually read another passage from Luke chapter 7 as well, if you want to keep a finger at Luke chapter 7. What I'm going to be doing is something that we don't normally do in RUF, and that is uh, we're doing a topical series. We're asking ourselves questions about faith, but we are also asking certain texts of Scripture the question, what does it mean to believe? That's a little bit of a different approach than what your campus minister is accustomed to doing with you as you begin typically at the beginning of books of a semester and march through them uh, watching themes emerge straight out of the text as the letter or the gospel or the uh, book of history out un- un- uh, sort of unfolds itself. So it's a little bit different in method as we do that, but that's okay. That's what weekend retreats are for, setting aside some time to learn some new things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is in many ways the sort of classical location for the doctrine of faith. Let me read for you the first couple of verses in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Turn over, if you will, then to Luke chapter 7. Familiar story of Jesus with the centurion servant. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built for us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not... Worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith and when those who had been sent returned to the house they found the servant well as if that wasn't enough we're going to do one more turn over to Luke 16 we're asking a variety of passages this question of faith this is a familiar parable the rich man and Lazarus there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day None may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear... Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. These are the readings from God's Word this morning. What if I told you this morning that on my way here last night, the reason why I was late is because God appeared to me on the road coming here. He knew that I was coming to speak to you about things eternal, and he granted to me special powers. I have been given special powers this weekend to give to you anything that you want. But the demonstration of which has to cause you to never doubt that God is real, that his word is true, and Jesus was his son. What would you ask for? You ever thought about that? I've been asking my students this question for years. It's what I ask every single freshman class when they came through Ole Miss or Memphis. What would you want if you could get it simply asked for? But having seen it, you would walk away from that event, that experience, whatever, and say, I will never doubt that God is real, that the scriptures are true, and Jesus Christ is his son. What would you ask? gotten great answers over the years. Some people say, I'd like to see a miracle, maybe that God would heal my sick relative. Others say, get very sophisticated, I, I want a time machine so that I can go back in time and see Jesus walk on water, or maybe be there at the tomb when he emerges and rises from the dead. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite answer of all time, this is really not germane to the sermon, but it's awfully entertaining to me, Um one of my favorite students of all time looked and said, I want video. And I said, video? She goes, yes, video of the creation. I want someone to show me how God <laughs> did it from the very beginning. If You're asking for miracles and you want a video. So clearly this is what's compelling to your generation. All of these things were summed up one afternoon when I was sitting with a young man in a restaurant in Memphis at the University of Memphis who finally, in the midst of his frustration, he was considered himself something of a skeptic at that point in time, was on the outside of Christianity looking in. And he said, Les, this is what I don't understand. If God wants for people to believe in him so badly, why not make himself more obvious? Why all the cloak and dagger? Why are you hiding from us? If you need us to believe, then make yourself more plain. Look, I've been telling that story about that question for some 15 years now. And not one year has gone by when I've not had a student answer that question. Because I love to pose it to them. It's always fun to play, you be the campus minister. What would you say to someone who said, what is it with your God? You all want us to believe in him, but he seems to always be hiding in invisibility. Why not come out with it? Not one year has passed where I've not had a student respond with this. Well, less, if God made himself that obvious, then we wouldn't have to have faith. Now listen for a moment because I will bet you $5 that some of you in this room said that inside your heads even when I posed the question. Well, that would be ridiculous if God just came, in, came right out with it all. Then we wouldn't have to have faith in Him. I want to take that notion for just a minute and introduce what I want to talk about this morning. Because what is assumed in that notion is that the nature of faith is, as it were, a blind leap into the dark of invisibility or maybe even worse, absurdity. And the more absurd the better because it requires more faith to believe in it. No, Christianity doesn't make any sense. Yes, it's crazy that someone came back from the dead. None of it makes any sense. But see, that's where faith comes in. Is this not the way in which we oftentimes hear ourselves reasoning? And it is exactly the reasoning that your college professor has used with you, most likely, in most of your science type classes, or perhaps your World Civ classes, maybe even your, your humanities classes, where they say, look, it is great for you if you want to have some kind of religious faith. We won't deny you that here. But in this classroom, we deal with the facts you heard something along these lines? You can have faith. We're going to deal with rationality here. So here's my question for you this morning. What is the relationship between our thinking and our believing? Because by the way, I'm going to say everything that I just introduced just a moment ago is wrong. And not the Christian way of thinking about faith and reason. But then secondly, I want to ask the question, so then why can't I figure out if there's a God? That makes sense? That's my outline. Number one, what is the relationship between my thinking and my believing? And number two, then why can't I figure out if there's a God? Okay, the first question. What is the relationship between my thinking and my believing? Look back at Hebrews chapter eleven and notice what it says there. The writer says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Look, that Greek word there that's translated understand there in chapter 3 is the Greek word knowing, from which we get a sense of the word the mind or the reasoning of man. In other words, the writer is referring there to man's rational capacity. That ought to make the sentence read very strangely to you if you agree with your professors about the relationship between faith and rationality. Because listen to what it says. It says, therefore, by faith, we use our intellect. Or we could say, by faith, we conclude from the evidence that the universe was created by the word of God. Think about that. Look, y'all, this ought to sound completely odd to you. And it has a large... And what it will do is it will introduce you into something of an under-the-table conflict that is raging even among scientists today. Now, I will say this. It is scientists who tend to have a little more of a philosophical bent and realize that they've got to ask some more questions than often gets asked even among the scientific community. About the nature of what science is doing. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Up until probably 50 or 60 years ago, every scientist assumed that his job went something like this. Here is the scientist. And he is just a blank slate. There's nothing on his mind. He clears his mind of any distractions. And he walks out into the world of phenomenon. And as he does, he begins to collect data, a little bit from here, a little bit from there. And suddenly, as he sort of blankly collects this information, emerging from the information comes theories about the way in which that information fits together. And once those theories begin to be tested by the scientific method, they develop axioms or, or, or truths, things upon which we can build the rest of our understanding. And the scientist walks away and says, ta-da! Here we have discovered truth. And it just simply emerged from the facts. Hmm. What's interesting about that way of thinking is it is beginning to be challenged by a number of people. If you're interested in these kinds of things, you could look at Thomas Kuhn and his structure of scientific revolutions. You could look at guys like Michael Polanyi, who in his uh, critique of Criti- uh, Cartesian thought systems, or even Stephen Wolfram. Uh, computer geek guy who's written A New Kind of Science. More and more, there are people within the scientific community who are saying, you know what, I'm not exactly sure that that's the way in which this goes on. And what they're saying is, is that when a scientist begins to look at particles or bacteria or animals or whatever it is that they want to research, that they actually begin with an idea. They begin with a premise or what uh, Kuhn called a paradigm, a way in which they think this is going to be the case, that things are going to fit together. And he starts by assuming it to be true. And he says, from this vantage point, he begins to ask, does this explain the phenomenon that I'm observing? In other words, they begin with an idea that has yet to be proved, and they start to try to understand the universe from that vantage point. Now, some of you are saying, I really thought we were going to talk about the Bible and not a science class this morning. Please understand something, that the Bible has been saying that that's the way we do it from the very beginning. Look, y'all, the Bible says, by faith, we conclude from the evidence. Notice the order, because it's everything. Thinking thinking, I would argue that even your thinking of trying to find the directions of how to get to the mess hall this morning to eat, begins with some faith in some explanation. And truth becomes the theory that best explains what's out there. Bible has always said it was that case. Most of your professors, I'm going to suggest to you, begin with a premise that says there is no Supernatural. And by the way, it doesn't take a very long visit through your philosophy department to know that that is a premise that cannot be proven. It is an assumption about life. But from that point, your professors start to try to understand the universe from that vantage point. Look, a Christian is nothing more than one who has decided that from the premise of no God, the universe can't be made sense of. That's it. The premise simply doesn't account for what we see around us. And Christianity suggests, is suggesting that the only reasonable way to account for everything that they see is to begin from the premise that there is a God. To begin in faith. And that is not the same as saying that in spite of the fact that God, of uh, that, that, uh, the evidence that I see, I believe that God created everything. In other words, you know, I realize that it's all absurd and completely ridiculous, but I'm just going to believe it, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to hear the evidence. It's the opposite of what a Christian does. That's brainwashing, obscurantism. A Christian looks and says, look, if there is no God, then everything is an accident. And our attempt to create right and wrong from that sort of maybe social construct will always end up being arbitrary. Always. So, that in the end, no one can tell anyone else that something is wrong. And at this point, the man raises his hands and says, How absurd! Of course, we understand that things are wrong. A week and a half ago, I uh, was reading a fantastic article uh, in the Huffington Post written by a very uh, well known, and I should have his name in front of me, but I do not, um, a very well known uh, uh, educator who is an atheist. And studies the philosophy of education from a vantage point of atheism. And he was absolutely horrified that there were academics in our nation who were condemning the people who made the uh, anti-Islamic video that was seen by those around the world. And precipitated the violence against the U.S. embassies and the murder of our own ambassadors. And he was standing up and saying, how in the world can you say that that was wrong? We live on the basis of free speech. And yes, sometimes that free speech is going to get us in trouble. It is, we are all committing blasphemy to someone else because of their, their faith systems. And I sat with my jaw dropped open as I read this exchange between sort of liberal left-wing pro- professors and a prominent educator, atheist, trying to decide how we were going to figure out what was right and wrong. This is my prediction Islam and Muslims are going to be the great wake up call to the West that our little experiment of relativism has failed. We're going to have a big, ugly, postmodern hangover in about the next 10 to 15 years, the more our children start embracing Allah as God. It's coming. Because we look in I remember reading an article a couple of years ago about a big conference that had taken place in New York where they were trying to discuss uh, civil rights. And at one point, someone uh, suggested that in what they were going to frame up in the articles that women had fundamental basic human rights. And some of the, this, the Muslim uh, uh, attendees at this conference stood up and said, we don't want that phrase that way because we think that's a Western value to value the inherent nature of women interesting it is not enough to look and say how absurd Les Everyone everyone knows that women have inherent value really have you watched mad men this is your grandparents generation my friends when you watch it you'll get a little bit of an insight into why your mom and dad are as screwed up as they are because that's the kind of world in which they grew up in with those kinds of authority figures Look, my friends, I'm simply trying to say that the Bible's suggestion of the way in which we reason does not pit your thinking and your believing against each other. Quite the opposite. I would submit to you this morning that the Bible says that the life of faith is the life of thinking things through. Of thinking things through. It's not simply setting aside and walking into things I, I, in, in, my, in my experience and some of you say well that's because you've ministered at Ole Miss uh, bear, bear with me I do not see people rejecting Christianity because they have investigated the facts I see people rejecting Christianity because of one of two reasons number one because it's not cool because it's not hip or because it's not in it seems passe Or on the other hand, I see people rejecting Christianity because they have determined that it it can't make sense of their pain. That if there is a God, He would not allow me to be going through the things that I'm going through. That's the reason why people reject Christianity. And I do realize that there are people out there that say less, but I don't understand. What about places like 2 Corinthians 5 that say that we are to walk by faith and not by sight? Isn't that what you're talking about? That's that sort of like, blah, 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 I just believe in Jesus. Isn't that what that is? That's not what Paul is saying. Look, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. February the 12th, 1991, I got a kidney stone. Some of you are saying, Les, that was 21 years ago. How in the world do you remember the date? And my answer to you is, that means you've never had a kidney stone. You remember that date, right? Right? And I remember sitting there talking to my doctor as he walked through me, walked through with me what was wrong with my diet. And he told me especially that I was supposed to avoid dairy products. <laughs> Which as Brian Regan says, is like your doctor on your way out saying, and no more happiness. <laughs> but here's the deal. I looked at the charts, right? I saw the data. I believed what the doctor said but it was not too long before I came into the presence of a cold glass of chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is the nectar of the gods. In the new heavens and the new earth there will be rivers that will flow with chocolate milk and my system will be able to handle it in some way. And all of a sudden I see the texture. I see it. I notice that it's cold. I notice that it's making the outside of the glass sweat it's so cold. And I know that it will be thick. I know it will be rich. And suddenly I begin to doubt what the doctor says. Maybe he was wrong. Maybe he misdiagnosed me here. Here's my question to you. Where are those doubts coming from? They're not coming from new evidence. They're not coming from new reasons. What are they coming from? They're coming from my sight. They're coming from what I see. And Paul says, walk by faith. Walk by what you know to be true. Walk by what you've discerned from the evidence. Not by what your eyes will tell you in the moment of temptation. The relationship between your thinking and believing, my friends, is deeply connected and one which you must respect if you're to understand what faith is. Now, if you're following along with the lesson, you're thinking to yourself, Hmm, Les, it sounds like you're saying that only the smart people become Christians. And to be honest with you, I know lots of really smart people who hate Christianity. I think I'm actually fairly smart myself, and I've looked into this, and I don't feel like I can figure out whether or not there's a God. In other words, it sounds as if I'm saying that if you just use your reason properly, you can get to full assurance that there's a God. Well, this is where it gets a little complicated. And it becomes complicated when we look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. What an amazing interchange we have. We have a rich man who fared sumptuously. It just means he lived the life of a person who was well off. And during his lifetime, he ignored the plight of the poor. And it landed him in hell. Note to self. But in the midst of that exchange, there's a brief exchange with the two of them about the inevitability of this situation. That there's no fixing or crossing back and forth between these two great chasms until finally the rich man decides, well, if I can't save myself, maybe I can save my brothers. Father Abraham, would you send them back so that they will be convinced? That's the word. How can I get them convinced? But Father Abraham seems to not understand the question. He's like, why are you worried? Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Now, what is he referring to there? Well, the New Testament believing person would have referred to the Old Testament scriptures as Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, everything else that came after that. In other words, Father Abraham is saying, don't worry about your brothers. They have the Bible. Ooh, let's go to the beginning of the sermon this morning. What if when you came up to me and I I told you I had my special powers, right? You know, that God gave me to grant you anything that you wanted. You said, hey, you know what? That time machine sounds pretty cool. I want to go back and see the resurrection. I'll take it, less." What if I said to you, actually, why don't you and I get together and read the Bible? How satisfied would you be with that particular afternoon? You'd be disappointed. And so is the, the rich man. He's like, no, no, Father Abraham, clearly you don't understand the case. What we really need here is something awesome. You know? I mean, something that will whiz-bang everybody and blow them away. Like, I don't know, somebody rising from the dead. Father Abraham says, even if they had someone rise from the dead, you do realize that that's not going to be enough. And Jesus is telling this story. So who is he talking about rising from the dead? Himself. He knows that he's going to rise from the dead, and it will not be compelling for everybody. Here's my question. Why? Why? Why is it that if I, and again, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I actually officiated at a funeral a week ago this morning, at this very moment a week ago. I was officiating at a funeral. And I don't want to be disrespectful to those who have passed. But what if someone told you that they could drag a dead body into this place, speak over it, and rise again from the dead? Would you say that that would not be compelling for you? That that would not be something that you would say, you know what, I, um, I think I could clear my schedule for next year's fall conference. I dare say that our evening service might have a few more people in it if we could raise somebody from the dead. Look, y'all, every single person believes this. My wife and I were watching the Discovery Channel years ago. and It was one of those mysteries of the Bible things, which as an ordained minister, you're like obliged to have to stop it when you're surfing channels. And I remember we stopped on an interview that that a a person was doing with an atheist philosopher. And they said, look, what happens if you're wrong? What happens if you stand before God one day at your death and he looks at you and says, why didn't you believe in me? What are you going to say if you're wrong? The atheist did not miss a beat. He said, oh, that's simple. I'll simply look at God and say, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. Now look, I find that to be vaguely interesting, or maybe not vaguely interesting. I simply want you to notice that that is the exact opposite thing that the Bible says is the case. The Bible in places like Psalm chapter 19 say things like, The heavens are declaring the Word of God. Nature is showing forth His handiwork. Night unto night pours forth speech. And there is no place on earth where His voice is not found. The more that I speak, the more that there's music that comes up in the background. It's almost as if there's a soundtrack to today's sermon, which is awesome. Are we picking up someone's radio signal? Don't you wish that when you spoke there could be a soundtrack to your life? Ladies, you're trying to explain to him why it would be terrible for him to break up with you. And you're like, don't you understand and I love you? in the back of the door will be like, na, 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 na. Maybe then he would be compelled by that. Bear with me. What does it mean, therefore, if I don't hear that voice? What does it mean? Does it not have to mean, therefore, do you want me just to project that word? Wow, that's awesome. Why don't you just pull that plug? Oh, there it goes. That's awesome. He's got the powers, too. I granted Hunter the powers this morning. Put yourself, therefore, inside my friend's question. Why is God hiding? Because here's the crazy thing. The Bible says just the opposite. Not only is God not hiding, but that he's actually made himself obvious. Look, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Whoa. The Apostle Paul is saying of all of us, and I'm going to be the first to tell you, this is unflattering. He's saying, you know the truth, but what you are doing is you are doing a psychological trick of self-deception where you are literally holding down the truth, because what may be known of God, even his divine attributes and, eternal, na- and uh, eternal power, have been clearly perceived from the very creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that everyone is without excuse. <laughs> Listen, I know it doesn't solve it, I simply find it interesting. Interesting that for someone to look and say, God has not given me enough, that there might be a day where God looks and says, no, I gave you plenty. And as the true motives of your heart are really laid out, you'll find that it's not because you could not believe in me. It's because you didn't want to believe in me. Because to admit that I was there was to admit, number one, that you're not in control. And in the end, that's really what you wanted. And number two, that if I was there, you'd have to realize that you might be on my wrong side. In other words, my friends, what if the truth is, is that on the inside, I have actually been exercising a process of holding something down? Self-deception, that should creep you out. It makes me incredibly nervous. If one of you are deceiving me right now, I go to Georgia when you actually go to Samford. All the, the only way to break that deception is for you or someone else to tell me the truth. But my friends, what do you do if the deception comes from inside your own head? Who can break that? Well, the Bible actually gives an answer to that. The only way in which that happens if there is, a, is if there is a word from the outside. If there is a word from the outside that can break our own deception... Paul says it this way in Romans 10. Listen to how he says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Because it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Listen to verse 17. Hopefully you'll hear this in a brand new way this morning that you never have heard it. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How many of you have been frustrated with your campus minister this year? You know, honestly, if we could just stop doing so much Bible study, I feel like you want to get up there, campus minister boy, and get up there and talk about your, uh, your Bible passages and whatnot. And it just seems like there's some more things we could do to really be reaching people. Really? Because Paul just said that the only way in which people come to faith is by hearing. And the only way in which they hear is from the word of Christ. And listen to me, this is where it gets dangerous. I'm going to finish with this. What that means, my friends is that you are better off this morning sitting with a Bible open in your lap or on your phone, wherever it might be, than you would be than if you could get into a time machine and go back 2,000 years and be there and witness every single one of Jesus' miracles and every single one of his, uh, his resurrection, his crucifixion, and every event in his life you are better off because only in the pages of this book, Moses and the prophets, Father Abraham says, is there the possibility of breaking through that self-deception? I can see from some of your faces that you're not convinced. And you know what? I want to tell you that that's okay. That's okay. But I dare you to go look here To see if there might be some way for you to come to some grasp of whether or not it's true. I dare you because if what it says is true, your mere faithful exposure to it week in and week out through the faithful preaching and teaching of your campus minister will leave you never the same because you came. I dare you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the first time this comes to us...